I'd like to say as well to those listening that in the final part of our session today and indeed joining us and listening for this live podcast recording are several members of the Voicecraft Network and they'll be joining with us to continue the conversation. So the first topic of our conversation together, at least the initial framing, was something like value and civilization. That was the name of the podcast. Notions of meaningfulness, of commons, of the distinction between value and utility. All of these came through as, I think, quite important. And I think all of those meanings will be with us today. I think there was a really core argument that you made towards the end of the conversation, Daniel, that has been very closely held by the you know, embodied thesis of voicecraft over many, many years. Certainly it's animated my own being in the world. And I think it's something that is actually a very close point of resonation among all of us. You gave voice to that in a really, in a really impressive way. And I think I would just share a little bit of how I reflect on that as some basis for shared understanding. The core of that seemed to be making a similar point actually to something Forrest and I discussed in our common series conversation, something to do with the criticality of attuning to beauty, of what it is to enter a context, of what it is to be known and valued and to value and to appreciate in a context that requires a sensitivity, asks of us a sensitivity to perceive value itself. It's something that can be thought about through the frame of relationship, through community, through commons. And it's the kind of thing that, in some sense, we must, it's a strong word to use, seems to be the case that um, our perception of value in relationship is at least partly afforded by an exchange process with others in relationship whether first through parents or the culture itself. In that sense, there is something we're engaging with and in that can help us to attune. In that sense, while we participate uniquely in reality and we can source in some sense our appreciation for life, we are also bound in some important sense to the quality of the relationships that we're already a part of. There's something critical about being welcomed into and um, afforded the skill of really perceiving value in life, appreciating the importance of nature, appreciating the qualities of beauty and what have you. That's the first part. And the second part is that there's been a tremendous challenge, it seems, for cultures to preserve the transmission and the educational pathways that afford participants in culture to cultivate that skillfulness in so perceiving. So there's something profoundly important that we've not necessarily been able to generate and hold in strength the pathways to continue to appreciate and evolve in some sense our awareness of how to be in profound care for the patterns of value which comprise us and comprise connections with the world. And uh, usually it's, um, I suppose, hosts who begin by offering something perhaps a little bit easier to metabolize than that. And that's simply my effort at sharing 
something which seemed profoundly important about bringing into some kind of clarity among us because it moves us in a particular direction at least what seemed to me to be a really core inquiry that we were left working our way through was in fact the problem of how we in OG's uh, Daniel's terminology price that enculturation of skillfulness and it seems to me that is really core to a very practical inquiry here and I know Forrest you intimated that there are movements in understanding differentiating for example between an economy and an ecology which might be tremendously helpful in furthering this conversation and offering some additional depth that we didn't necessarily speak to in the previous conversation, although I believe it was intimated, and certainly I'm attempting to intimate to that in my initial opening here. The final piece would just be to nod to my appreciation for, Michelle, you're bringing in notions of cycles at many scales, and in particular, the importance of recognizing various periods in history in which a kind of commons awareness of some shared fundamental kind of value exchange has come back into necessity in some sense as a counterbalancing force in the continuation of civilization. And that it does, I would put to us, I think, and it's an interesting thing to hold in consciousness together, that we are entering a period in history, we're entering a period as we look towards understanding new modes or perhaps remembering older modes of gathering and relating that we are here at some sort of opening into how do we do things differently that draw into real awareness and in some sort of embodied sense a, a dedication to treating the commons necessary for the affirmation of and the support of and nurturing of life in its many forms so that's my little opening here we'll see where we go perhaps i will give the opening nod on this occasion to daniel just as i did invoke a few of the perspectives that he brought to bear last time as a way of opening a particular angle that you might like to comment on those Daniel but for each of you in our opening exchange here I really would ask that you feel welcome to draw in parts of our last dialogue that might have been meaningful where that meaningful also touches something that you feel is relevant for us here to continue to relate with and I've given a sort of sense of where I feel that in this case Forrest a kind of unique participation you can give can at least be sought and I'm sure there's plenty of opportunity for all of us to do the same as things unfold so uh, Mr. OG how do you feel about that as a bit of an opening and orientation and is there anything you'd like to sort of um, clarify or reaffirm about how this conversation might develop somewhat along those lines Oh, it is lovely to see all you fine people again. Thank you for this opportunity. And first, Mr. Landry, I have to give you credit. So I was listening to a conversation on the imminent metaphysics, and my son found it fascinating to talk about relations as primary. We got to have a great conversation getting all the dishes together. Thank you for that. 
I also am very interested by the small um, group method that you were describing with Mr. Rudd. And Mr. Mr. Uh, Michelle Bowens, that piece you did on the comments that you did today that came on in the Substack was fantastic. And I think putting the comments primary and moving beyond. One of the reasons why this entire question of pricing, though, is so difficult because we're in this paradigm of scare scarcity and dis disablement that like um, that Ivan Illich talked about. I was thinking a lot reading that piece, Mr. Bones, and also from last time, um, where Ivan Illich talks about how basically modern economics has created a notion of scarcity in order to justify the particular pricing mechanism of which then creates a sort of competitive uh, zero-sum game. Where instead, if you go back like in history, people didn't really think of, and he has a lovely book on like um, H2O and the waters of forgetfulness. They didn't look at not having water as evidence that water was scarce. They saw it as, oh, there's an obstacle. I need to get water. It's very interesting now that our very experience of water is as something that is scarce. And of course, there's truth to it. But like our very kind of way we've been trained is to experience things as being scarce, not as sort of obstacles that we need to overcome or figure out new ways to go about, say, sharing water or have it more abundantly. Our experience is one automatically of anxiety. And once you have one of anxiety, then everything becomes competitive. Everything becomes sort of tracing out boundaries. And money then is in service of how to get more of that scarcity than other people. And it starts feeding into dynamics of competition and zero-sumness as opposed to how could money potentially be a mechanism of investment in a commons, investment in a community, a coordination of information to say make it more attuned to what is needed for that humanity. So you have all these different paradigms. The other thing that Ivan Illich talks about that I think is quite critical is where it talks about modern man is defined by disablement. So, and, and, it's, and it's a zeitgeist as well. So when you get a headache, what's the first thing you've kind of been trained as a modern person to do? You say, oh, I need to get medicine. You don't tend to think I need to go outside. I need to run more sip tea. Your very automatic association is there's something wrong with me and I need to go to a system or an expert class, which then one means you need money. Two, you need to participate in the system where you get the money. And then three, all of those things make you further and further disabled. And what's very interesting about what Mr. Ivan Illich is talking about is I actually find it a more compelling vision sometimes than maybe Orwell or Huxley, because in Orwell and Huxley, you kind of go, oh, yeah, the government's trying to control me. It's really bad or the Hux, you know, they're using pleasure or whatever. But in disablement, if you end up disabled by the system, but the system provides you the things that you need to get your headache made better, you don't think you're controlled. In fact, you're I'm the system is here because it's given me access to this medicine, right? And so you're gradually and gradually disabled and not even able to recognize you're disabled. So there's two things that I think has to kind of be identified before you can even kind of talk about pricing and investment and money and different things is that one, so much of money is talked about in the terms of disablement, where humans are disabled and they're using their money not to invest in the world they want to live in, but to get access to the abilities that they haven't trained for themselves because they've been trained by the expert class not to do that. And you're kind of seeing the other thing is there's a kind of a zeitgeist. Like if you have a headache and you're like, well, I'd like to figure out how to treat it myself, maybe exercise, your neighbors will be like, that's kind of irrational. Oh, you're being stubborn. Oh, you're being foolish. Like if you try to say, um, you know, <laughs> Ivan Illich had that line where he said, if you try to build your own house, you're seen as a deviant. Like you're like a deviant now. If you try to do something with your bare hands, you're like irrational and immoral and stubborn, right? Well, that means the only way to be seen as a moral citizen is basically to contribute to the system. But here's the key. All of that is training you out of the commons. Because the commons, what, what Illich talks about is the movement from substance societies of subsistence to scarcity. And so what ends up happening is you say, oh, the world is scarce. 
I need an expert class or system to organize things because I can't provide it for myself and you're increasingly, increasingly disabled. Well, once we, what ends up happening there, then when you start talking about a commons, then when you start talking about, well, how can we use money in a way to sustain our commons, not in a competitive dynamic, but to figure out how to create in a community where we can actually operate. We're like, well, we can't do that. We're not, we, we can't do that. We're not official people who have uh, titles to make community. We're not economists. We can't do these different things. And so you're disabled from thinking you're capable of that. And then furthermore, you're disabled from thinking that you have the capacities to figure out how to attune yourself to experience beauty or to attune other people to experience beauty or to attune other people to experience care because, well, I can't do that. That's not my job. Oh, wow. Because that's the other thing Ivan Illich talks about. And then I'll pass it on here as just kind of some opening thoughts. We literally don't think we're capable of doing anything that we're not paid to do. If you're not paid to do it, then you're, you don't have the expertise to be able to do it. Well, wait a minute. What are we going to do if the market doesn't pay anyone to do stuff that creates care? Then literally everyone thinks they're incapable of doing the things that you need to create care versus power and transaction, to use Mr. Landry's uh, categories. And so then we can't do those things because we've been trained to think we don't have the ability to do it unless you get paid for it. Ivan Illich says that basically what happens is any work outside of wage labor gets defined as not work and irrational to do. So then the entire zeitgeist is structured to not developing what people need to attune to beauty, to thinking about economics in terms of subsistence, not scarcity, and how to go about attuning a society in terms of beauty and having that be kind of the metric of coming together, not how we can get some of those limited resources before the other guy does. So I've been thinking a lot about Ivan Illich as, and then I'll pass it on. I've also returned to Tocqueville, who's kind of been blowing my mind on what how he actually describes democracy as very different from how we think about it. And I also was very interested on uh, E.O. Wilson talking about the difference between dolphins and apes and their evolution and how like humans so much require the campfire in order to actually develop as opposed to kind of being isolated individuals, which again, the other thing we seem disabled from doing, we have been disabled from having human relations. We feel disabled from being to get, get together. We don't have time or we don't have anything in common. Well, that's actually going to lead to not realizing the fullness of what we can do as human beings. And certainly we won't be engaging in terms of care. So those are some opening thoughts that come to mind. It's a pleasure to be here. And again, I'm very, what Michelle has done on his Substack stack work on imminent metaphysics. I think I'm going to have to get into all of the different triads with Haven. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great Christmas. We're looking forward to it. So thank you for this opportunity. Michael, did you want to address that or would you like me to? I won't react uh, in depth. I just want to tell you kind of the the difference of the world I live in. So, I, you know, I'm a child of the West. I lived uh, in Brussels until I was 42. Uh, then I moved to Thailand and I've been here for 20 years. And, you know, just a few things. So my wife calls me father. And I call my wife mother. I know, I know some people still do that even in the West, but that, you know, so in other words, what, what is primary here is your role, right? So, so you, you're, you are, you, you are already somebody, but you don't have to, to fight for it. You, you already have your father, your mother, you know, and so, so, so there is already an appreciation in the society just by the mere fact that you're that you're serving some kind of role in society. 
So for me, that was interesting. That's not something that I ever experienced outside. So another example is my when my children were small, they don't have a word for I. I mean, that's amazing, right? So they so my son would talk about like kid is hungry. And kid means Chris uh, in the Thai uh, version, right? So so he didn't say I am hungry. He was talking about himself. So again, that's something that is so strange from a you know Western individualistic point of view. Then the third element, and I let you talk first, is that you cannot name anything in the Thai language outside of its relations. So you say Kon Thai, which means like human Thai, right? So uh, like you say, uh, wood table. So, so, I mean, I'm not an expert, so I, you know, <laughs> uh, but basically that, that is an important, an important rule. And you cannot read the language, so they use Sanskrit as an alphabet, you know, with these things that you have up and down the words for the tonality, but there is no punctuation. So again, you just don't know what anything means without a relationship. And that is completely embedded in the language. So I'm just saying that you know, everything that we talk about as Westerners like, is the result of hundreds of years of, of development in a certain direction, a direction of individuality. And, 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 uh, and this is not, of course, the, the way that other societies and even, of course, previously even Western society had seen what it means to be human. And I'm actually not saying that one is good and the other is bad. Uh, but I'm probably saying, and I'm, I'm sure some of you will agree here, that we've reached a point of imbalance in the West about a certain polarity and forgetting the other. While we, I think we might also legitimately have, you know, feelings of discomfort in a society where like the individual does not really exist on its own and, and has to be, and has to be sacrificed to the group, you know, in some way or another that we, that we don't really would appreciate uh, with our Western uh, formation. I just wanted to, you know, share that experience of living in another culture where that relationality is much more embedded in language, in the way of seeing the world and the way of relating to each other. Anyway, so please go ahead first. Um, thank you for that. I, I mean, and when I say thank you, I'm saying actually thank you to Tim and to Daniel and to Michael. So uh, in this sense, I'm, 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 I'm appreciating. There's a lot of uh, opportunity here. Um, I think most of my remarks are actually going to be kind of trying to connect what uh, some of the historical themes um, that have been cited here and 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 kind of where my thinking has gone. Um, partially in, in response to like, what, what is it that matters here? So for instance, I hear uh, in the question, um, you know, how do we price beauty or how do we price the commons? Or how do we think about using the tool of monetary systems to preserve the value of the commons? And um, I, I find this question actually quite quite interesting because uh, in effect, it's, it's, it's more defined by what it assumes than, than, than what it actually is, is, is pointing us to. So in effect, when, when I think about, and, and, and by the way, first of all, I'm not attempting to disagree with the notion that scarcity is a thing and that, you know, we do actually have to uh, at least understand the philosophy of that. But I think part of what you were pointing to is, is that it wasn't always the case that scarcity was the way in which we thought about these kinds of things. 
And similarly, it, it wasn't always the case that we thought about monetary systems as a way to solve problems either, right? Like from, when people say uh, death and taxes, uh, I find myself a little irritated because, you know, while death has been around for at least a few billion years, uh, taxes has only been around for maybe a few thousand years at most, right? And so in effect, these aren't even on the same scale, right? So so in this sense, there's a there's a notion here that we've 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 taken the idea of system of of the use of causation um as as if it is the only tool in the in the toolbox to to solve problems such as how do we interact with the commons in a way that is uh, both acknowledging of a need for sustainability uh, and acknowledging that it is an evolving and changing thing and that uh, we are also evolving and changing and that these things need to co-regulate to some extent in order for sustainability to to be upheld. And that in effect, you know, we want a kind of uh, balance between uh, the notion of sustainability as perfected changelessness, if I take it to the asymptotic notion, and uh, the notion of change and evolution also taken to its perfection. Well, you can't use system, which is itself a notion of changelessness right it's like an algorithm when does the algorithm change well when it doesn't work anymore right so so something changed in the environment that identified that the algorithms you thought you could use are no longer going to help you so given that that is an inevitability at some point consciousness has to enter the picture to juricate between perfected change and perfected changelessness we can't pre-assume what is the correct response we have to have a in situ consciousness that can essentially say in this situation given that our old goals don't work anymore what are we going to do right so in effect there's a there's a kind of liminal space that's entered when there is a failure of the existing tool set and so let's let's actually identify that so in effect we're basically saying and and this is this is a, a grand question are there things that causation can't do and it turns out, actually, there's quite a lot. I mean, the whole notion of general relativity is to set limits on what causation could do. There's the whole notion of quantum mechanics that sets limits on what causation could do. And then there's just even the fact of what algorithms themselves can and can't do, like the the the, the halting problem or the Rice theorem basically sets limits on what can be done with causation. And so in effect, there's a sense here in which we're saying, okay, we know for sure that there are things that causation can't do. But some people say, well, this tool has worked so well for so long. It's given us all of this wonderful stuff, you know, trains and, you know, aircraft and food and and, and just wonderful, uh, you know, games that we can play in whole other universes, you know, like uh, online uh, multiplayer uh, scenarios and so on. So in effect, there's a sense here of, wow, technology has done so much. But we notice this increasing class of problems, thing with environmentalism, things to do with inequality, uh, things to do with with global warming or with, you know, essentially any of those kind of big, hairy, audacious problems. Like, what do we do about coral reef loss or species uh, extinctions or rainforest devastation or things like that? And you notice that all of these problems are commons types problems, like the big, complicated things that have large numbers of people involved and that are very, very nuanced, like anything to do with an ecosystem basically has to account for the reality of the ecosystem, which is not something you can simulate easily on a computer. Right? I mean, it's just way too many variables 
way too much going on, not all of which can be observed, and certainly is fantastically complicated. It's like trying to use a human brain to understand the human brain. There's just a limit in terms of how far you're going to be able to go with that approach. And so in this in this sense, there's a there's a there's an acknowledgement here that the the tools of understanding and of system and of causation, although they are very good for certain kinds of situations, are very bad at for other kinds of situations. And that have, over the years, as things have have moved along, like say every year you're presented with a hundred problems and your toolkit's really good and it solved 95 of them. That means Next year, you're going to have five left over from the year before that weren't fixed. And you get a new set of 100 problems. And again, five don't get solved, or maybe it's 10 this time, right? But you still have five from the year before, which still don't get solved. That means over time, the number of problems that your toolkit can't address accumulate in the background until one way or another, you're going to be pushed into this liminal space. You can't work with the rules anymore. You have to go back and identify what are the principles and what are the practices that actually do work. And so in this particular sense, I'm, I'm basically just going to point out that no matter how sophisticated your knowledge of causation, it is not going to give you skill in making choices. That if we're looking at how do we make good choices, that there is a sense of what do we mean by a good choice and what do we mean by the essence of the process of choice, that will never be grounded in causal process or causal thinking of any type whatsoever. So in a sense, there's a need to move beyond utilitarian calculus to a value calculus that can actually ground the notion of goodness. And at the same time, we need a metaphysics that can actually ground the notion of choice, not by trying to reduce it to causation, because that won't work. There'll always be a gap between what technology can tell you you can do and what you know you should do. And where does that knowing come from? It's not going to come because, you know, some deity on high told it to you. It's going to be because it's part of your innate nature. It's part of the nature of your relationship to the ecosystem, which, by the way, is different than an economy. So in this particular sense, if I'm looking at money as a system, the mere fact that it's a system has already told me it's not going to provide me with the kind of information I need for the big, hairy, audacious problems of, say, species extinction. Okay. Money will work really well for the kinds of things that causation works really well for, that system works really well for, which are simpler, more obvious systems. But the commons is not a simple, obvious system. It never was. And so in this particular sense, we're basically asking the question, how do we use this tool of causation to basically deal with things that are ultimately associated with choice? Well, that's just not going to work. So what do we need to do instead? Well, we need to actually understand what was the nature of the process that was actually going on all along that we just overlooked because of the nature of the way we asked the question? So in this particular sense, I noticed, well, wait a minute. What are the kinds of things that money's good for and what are the kinds of things that it's not so good for? Well, we looked at that a little bit. One of them is, is that, you know, if I look at the history of it and so on and so forth, I basically say, well, if I'm in a barter, barter system and I know this isn't actually the way that money emerged, but but say, for example, because most people will think of this as the heuristic, that we're in some sort of barter. And you talk about this coincidence of need situation. But actually, if you go a little bit deeper, you say, well, wait a minute, anytime we're thinking about money, we're really thinking about choices. I can use it to buy a product or a service and I, I can treat it as essentially a way to establish the relative value of the product or service relative to my capacity to, to engage with that, i.e., if I have X number of dollars, I can purchase X number of services or X number of product. But the thing is, is that it's actually the comparison that's making it easier, right? 
In other words, any person who learns a numeric system gains this concept of this number is bigger or smaller than this one. So when you're looking at the barter situation, you're saying, well, I'm trying to compare apples to horseshoes. Say I've got a blacksmith who's basically good at making horseshoes, and I got a guy that's got an apple orchard, and he needs a he needs the blacksmith to make a, a, a saw or something, right, that'll make it easier to harvest apples, right? So there's, there's a thing here where there wants to be some sort of deal, but now I have to assess how many horseshoes for how many apples, right? And having both of those compared to this common underlying metric, i.e. whatever a dollar is in this particular case, whatever unit of currency you happen to be in, whatever civilization you're in, that all I have to do is just basically say, is this number bigger or smaller than this one? Think of how much conversation that those two people, like if I had people comparing actually apples to actually horseshoes, they're going to need to spend a good part of an afternoon trying to figure out how many of which one equates to how many others over what period of time, over how much of a loan, and how many other conversations with probably a hundred other people in your tribe that are going to somehow in one way or another indirectly be involved, okay? As opposed to just, for example, uh, is this number bigger or less than that one? And is that number bigger or less than this other one? And as soon as I got answers to those questions, I know whether it's a good idea or not. Okay, That is a powerful heuristic. It is a heuristic that works for a vast number of people in a vast number of circumstances. So in this particular sense, monetary instruments have basically been replacing large and elaborate conversations for thousands of years and they do it really really well because when you start to have more than tribes people living in cities and all of a sudden you're basically dealing with people you don't know very well having your heuristic of you can haggle over numbers is a heck of a lot easier than trying to figure out the ultimate value of a horseshoe versus the ultimate value of an apple that's hard that's really, really hard. So figuring it out in terms of numbers basically has simplified an enormous amount of conversations. And given that we only have 24 hours in a day and probably are only willing to deal with other human beings, maybe four of them, there's a sense in which there's a there's a kind of limit to the amount of bandwidth that you have available. And if you spend the entire day arguing over one transaction, you're not going to achieve very much. So in this sense, having a numeric system as a way of thinking about how to do bulk transactional process is a huge win. Okay, which is no wonder why we have singular currency systems, singular languages, and usually singular governments. Okay, and those, by the way, are or singular religions, even right? Monotheism, um, mono governments, and, and mono currencies usually co occur in civilization if you go look. So, anyways, if we say, okay, clearly there's value here, but what is it that is now the comparable? Because we look at situations like species or uh, ecosystem loss, which are clearly common issues, the complexity is high. And we try to look at, can we use a monetary instrument, i.e. assign a number to it, that creates a kind of incentive system, i.e. a causal process, because people will respond to, you give them a carrot, they'll go for the carrot, right? Or you hit them with a stick, i.e. scarcity, and you make them afraid, they'll move away from that. So you're using pain and joy, basically, as a means of trying to conditionalize behavior to create the you know, governance of Adam Smith and the invisible hand and all that kind of stuff. But the problem is, is that that tool can only work short-term at best and can only do it at a significant substantial loss of information that would have otherwise occurred in those conversations, which, by the way, happen to be conversations which are necessary because we're dealing with a complicated topic. 
Okay, so let's look at what's actually happening here. So in one sense, we say, okay, I have, you know, I, I think I may have made this metaphor once before. Please tell me if I have. You've got a tree in the woods, right? It's a thing in the ecosystem. The number of interactions that it has in the ecosystem is enormous. Have I said this metaphor before? This was in the previous conversation. Perfect. Means I don't got to do it again. Okay. So in this sense, we have extraction and I lose, I don't know, something like, as I mentioned, something like at least 10 to the 12 bits of information describing that scenario, which are relevant bits. If I'm going to be planting a tree, I need to know the impact that it's going to have on the commons over a long period of time. And I'm not going to have that information by myself. I got to talk to at least three or four neighbors to have any clue at all as to what that might mean. And they're probably going to have to talk to their grandfathers to understand the implications of that, even if they have any idea at all, which they probably don't. And so in effect, there's a sense here in that every single time I go from extraction, abstraction, accumulation, I'm losing so much information that by the time I get to an accumulated number, which is a comparable, right? How much is in my bank account versus how much I can spend putting a tree in the woods. I'm gonna plant a tree in the woods with X number of dollars, but I have um, lost something like 10 to the 30 information units, whatever the complexity it is to make that choice well. And so in this particular sense, monetary systems are not gonna work for the commons. It's just that simple. And so in this sense, we're basically saying, okay, Given that we notice that the whole point behind all of this stuff was to make choices and that monetary process is a way to make choices. Is there another way to make choices? Well, there's obviously governance process. Governance process is currently defined by things like back to monotheism, mono government slash singular currency. Um, you know, usually those the, the economic system and the governance process is usually so entangled, it's probably not even distinguishable. Um, this, of course, leads to all sorts of havoc. Same way we've noticed that you have havoc when you try to basically make religions and governments the same. You also have havoc when you let, try to make governance and um, market systems the same. Okay, But either way, we do know that most forms of government, whether it be democracy or dictatorship, is, is effectively going to be a system of some sort or another. It's going to be a whole constellation of causal processes and dynamic feedback loops. And that's basically what court politics is, is a bunch of people basically playing a game by some static set of rules and they cheat if they can and maybe they get away with it and they don't. But the mere fact that it's a game means somebody's losing. And for, uh, and, and you know, basically I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Daniel, not this Daniel, Daniel Schmachtenberger a long time ago pointed out, and probably he based it on someone else. I have no idea. Win-lose games mean we all lose. Lose-lose games are no good. <laughs> Nobody wants that. So the only way that we're going to get win-win games is by playing win-win games. But even the fact of it being a game means that it's about skill, which means that it's about power, which means that it's, in a sense, jacked into our dopamine circuit. And so, in effect, we have a kind of unconsciousness associated with playing games just from the get-go. And the mere fact of it being a game doesn't matter who sets the rules. Whoever does set the rules is probably stacked it in favor of them or people they care about being able to win. The mere fact of it being a game essentially sets it up like this. So I'm not going to try to use game systems to basically deal with big, hairy, audacious problems because they can't handle the complexity. The complexity is real. 
I need something else. I need something like actual clarity and consciousness and choice. And I can't get there by substituting a simple heuristic. I actually need true principles. I need to know what those principles are. I need to translate those directly into practices in some real way. So in this sense, we're basically saying, okay, what are those principles? Well, number one, we mentioned already, choice is not causation. Don't be confused like that. Also, clarity is not simplicity. People get confused about that all the time. I'd rather have, going back to an economic theme, a large multifaceted diamond, which is a complex object, does complex things with light, versus the simplest possible object made out of the same atoms, which would be a sphere of pure carbon. You know, from a geek perspective, a sphere of pure carbon is a pretty interesting thing. But for most people, it doesn't have that much economic value. But a diamond with this huge facet thing going on and perfect clarity, whatever, most people are probably going to prefer that because of, I guess, economic reasons, right? So the beauty element enters into it, but of course we tend to neglect that because it hasn't factored into our choice on its own basis. In the same sort of way, we have to think about we're making choices on the basis of care, independent of I'm compelled to do it by some power system, or I'm incentivized to do it because of some transactional system. In other words, you care because you want to, because that's the right thing to do, because you happen to like beauty, because you happen to like goodness, and you happen to like truth. Why? Well, just because I do. Truth tends to work better. I can basically talk about it in the sense of actionable functionality. But, you know, we covered purpose already. There's also value and meaning, right? And frankly, goodness and beauty is going to be valuable and meaningful just as much as it's quote unquote true. And then these things are distinct, inseparable, and non-interchangeable. And it's the non-interchangeableness part that shows up here. Because I can't just substitute one for another in some sort of fungible transaction system. If it's fungible, if I can substitute one thing for another, then individual value of consciousness and embodiment has just gone away. And oh, by the way, there's this entire theory of quantum mechanics that basically says you can't do that, right? That, that, that information can't be copied. It can't be created and it can't be destroyed. It is going to, in a sense, be like fundamentally there, whether you're aware of it or not, right? You know, there's things that you can't know, but are still true. And so in this sense, there's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of sort of just deep recognition that it really isn't the case that people are interchangeable with other people. I mean, you know, with the notion of artificial intelligence and business practices and so on and so forth, yeah, that employee doesn't suit me anymore. I'm going to fire him. I'm going to hire this other guy. And as far as I'm concerned, from the business perspective, they're the same. But from the human perspective, it isn't like that. It never has been, right? And, and in effect, when we're, when we're looking at, like, what does it mean to preserve the commons? I don't want to think about what happened in the last thousand years in terms of economic policy. In fact, I don't even want to think about what happened in the last 10,000 years. I'm going to look for inspiration at least 15,000 years back. And I'm going to recognize that although those tribal people, those indigenous cultures had true wisdom about how to live in a state of nature as evolved over the previous 100,000 years of embodied practice, I'm also going to know that a lot of technology has come out and Pandora is out of the box. 
Pandora has been released. I'm not going to stuff her back into the box. That ain't going to happen. So now I have to do something which nature could not have prepared me for. Evolution has not been able to adapt to all of the technology that has emerged. Otherwise, pollution wouldn't be an issue. So we, in effect, have to do something as a species that has never been done before on this planet. We have to become conscious. We need to, in a sense, embody good choice. We need to be the deities that we have become, whether we wanted to or not. The capacity to create and destroy worlds with our technology, which, by the way, arrived since nuclear and certainly again since biotech. And now again with artificial intelligence, which could destroy the entire future because we are confused about the value of causation versus the value of choice. We think that we can essentially give choice to these machines, which are purely causal entities, and that somehow or another that's an improvement. It isn't. Never will be. That is the worst possible conflation of purpose being more important than value and meaning, and it just ain't so. Life matters. So in this sense, there's a there's there's just a, a, a fundamental recognition, I guess, if I'm going to basically be bringing a perspective here, that asking how do we price the commons is not the right question. It's how do we teach the discernment skills so that people notice when they're addicted to games. They notice when they're trapped in power structures that disadvantage them, that extort from them, push them into a way of thinking that scarcity is the only way of thinking about it, and try to manipulate them through the exercise of pain, the exercise of entrapment, technology bundled with other technology. You can only buy this, which you want, if you take these five other things that you don't want. You know, you sign on to this contract and uh, we're going to make it really hard for you to quit that contract because we're going to put this sort of balloon payment at the end. If you cancel soon, we're going to load on all sorts of fees. And so, in effect, we're going to entrap you to limit your choice. You don't want to know what a weapon is. A weapon is the use of causation when one person uses causation to limit the choice of another person. That's what a weapon is. Double check. 100% of the time that that's going on, the causation's being used to limit choice, the word weapon comes up. And so in this particular sense, get discerning about that. Notice when that's happening. And, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you've gone down a dark alley and at that particular point, somebody decides to rob you because you're there, you might say, wow, this sucks. You might also basically think back a little bit, how the heck did I end up in this place? Right? You need to roll the choices back a little bit of, I increasingly put myself in danger of being hurt, of being extorted from because I wasn't paying attention to the places where technology was increasingly being used against the individual, against the citizen, where the policies essentially continually favor larger and larger corporations and institutions because people are no longer distinguishing between what an institution is and what a community is. They're no longer distinguishing between economics and power. And they forgot altogether that care was the reason they even walked into the swamp in the first place. So in this particular sense, without some skill in the space of discernment about why causation is not choice and why neither of them are change and why simplicity, complexity, and clarity are distinct and separable and non-interchangeable and why rules can't substitute for principles or practices and in effect, why these things are all tied together in a way that has to do with things like value, purpose, and meaning, or the difference between the actual and the potential. 
Well, the nature of the relationship as essentially the binding that connects the subjective and the objective is more fundamental than both the subjective and the objective. At this particular point, people might think I'm getting really weird, but I'm not. I'm pointing to principles. I'm pointing to the kinds of things that when understood, bring clarity. And when those kind of clarities start emerging, you notice yourself asking different questions. And when you notice yourself asking different questions, you might start to ask, well, are these even the right questions? Are these the most insightful questions that I could possibly ask in this scenario? And Daniel, as much as I am delighted to see all of the pictures and all the things that you're connecting together, I suggest to you that those forefathers of those philosophers that you're looking at, they weren't asking the right questions. They had some insights, some very good insights that lead you closer to this places we need to go. But I don't think the knowledge that they have can take us where we need to be. What got us here won't get us there. And where, if we're looking at, uh, you know, Charles Eisenstein, the world we all want to live in, that our hearts know is possible, okay? We're going to need to basically think about this and ask questions at a level that is altogether at a lower level. I'm looking at not how do I tweak the existing voting system or how do I tweak the the existing economic system by putting together new financial instruments, so-called cryptocurrencies and all the rest. I'm looking at how do we individually and collectively get better at making choices? How do we get more discerning about what are the right questions? How do we really tune into one another so that we can actually care for one another in an appropriate way? What are the relationship skills that increase our emotional maturity so that we have the wisdom necessary to really understand one another in a good sense? That's the commons I want to be a part of. Beautifully said. Thank you very much. There's so much there, Michelle. I notice you you leaning forward. Could I ask okay. just to take a few minutes and and speak some things that might allow a not a reorientation, but I am I am keen to in some sense try and ground the expression Forrest has just shared, which I find tremendously helpful and immensely valuable in perhaps something a little bit closer to the, let's say, living problems of sustaining in present culture that I can speak on behalf of myself, on behalf of Voicecraft. I'm hesitant to speak on behalf of anyone else because, of course, our contexts do differ, but there are important similarities. And it's indeed with a certain amount of appreciation and understanding for what some of those similarities we all share with respect to what it is to sustain and be part of a culture with, um, you know, uh, a bias in its dominance toward the, um, let's say, causation to the detriment of choice and community that is exemplified in everywhere we kind of move around and interact in. It also is for the most part, the system we need to interact with in order to meet our basic needs, or at least we have such a strong perception of that, which itself must be brought into address. I think it's also fair to say that given something you've spoken to on many occasions, Forrest, given you might understand a baby or a then growing up as a child into an adult, beginning from a place with less capacity to make enculturated choices or choices that are capable of sustaining and growing and evolving in the context of 
the kind of um, lives we're uh, intimating here, then it's a requirement, a necessity of parents to be able to graduate that capacity to make choices. And so in that sense, we meet this situation in many respects oppressed. <laughs> we meet this situation oppressed by forces that we are here in seeking to be in response with, which in my view um, raises this notion of what it means to live in a particular kind of liminal time. Can I add a piece? Sure. I know I'm interrupting you, but there's, there is something that you just reminded me of, which, which was, it was a question that was asked. The mother and the child are not in a transactional relationship. Of course. There is attachment, i.e. mother elects to love the child. There's attunement. The mother and the, and the mother's nervous system senses the nervous system of the child and vice versa. From that, it becomes possible to implement nurturing care action. The mother feeds the child or warms it or whatever's needed. I mean, if you if, if the child wants to sleep and you feed it food or vice versa, it's probably not going to be not going to work. Right. The child will develop a distrust. Whereas on the other hand, if nurturing care action is appropriate, then the child develops trust. It senses that other people are safe and it senses that the world is okay to be in. And as a result, it starts to develop autonomy. And when it develops autonomy, eventually it explores, you know, it does that spoken hub thing. It goes out, explores the world, and then it comes back and it gets reassured and develops a little bit more trust. And it goes out that it has now developing trust in self that it can deal with and navigate the world. It can, it can work in the commons. At some point or another, it runs into another being roughly its own age and they pair bond and start their own family, right? So sexuality leads to a new opportunity for bonding. Right, both partner-wise and then with the child that is produced. And this is the now developmental psychology perspective of what is an intergenerational knowledge transfer. And in this particular sense, we're, we're basically saying, wow, there's isn't, there is an educational piece that's going on here, but it's an educational piece that isn't actually transactional. The mother is in power relationship over the baby. And isn't really received. I mean, there is obviously some benefits. You know, they they experience joy from one another's company and so on. But but there's a notion here that you don't have the child because you're expecting a payoff. You're not making an investment that you personally think you're going to win on. The child may take care of you in your old age, but you could also get run over by a bus, or they could move off and also get run over by a bus. So you have no idea whether your investment's ever going to have any return in terms of your own lifestyle. Probably not. Almost certainly not. And in this sense, if you were having the child because it was some sort of toaster that was going to produce benefits for your future, then I would suggest you probably ought not to have children. That's not a very good way. It feels really psychopathic to me. Of so course. in this particular sense, there's a, there's a notion here that the underlying dynamic of care and community is actually the primary one. And it's primary both horizontally and vertically through time. And the other direction too, which I won't name. So in this sense, there's a there's a notion here in which there's a there's a there's a recognition that if we're really going to quote unquote get civilization right, that that developmental perspective in effect is actually something we need to really understand and, and implement. Right? There's a sense here in which I'm looking at this. I'm saying, okay, 
like it, it isn't just the case that you can throw children into some sort of educational scenario, such as a school. There is actually a relationship between the tutor and the tutored. There needs to be a personal relationship. It needs to be a direct relationship. Yes, this is a throwback to I hear you. Way back. Am I, I interrupting you. you too much? Um, I would say, well, my yes. I'll stop. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say yes, because um, I, I believe we understand you. And I believe we are here coming from a place where that is, you know, I can stand forth in f full affirmation of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that if care doesn't dominate power, if care isn't stronger than power, and isn't the coordination basis of power, we got to get that right. That's like like Agreed. literally number one for working with systems right now. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. And um, okay, so that that that's there. Um, let that let that be known. It is the case that we interact in a world in which there is power, which makes it difficult to create the conditions for the kinds of sensitivity of care to take the time it needs to appropriately attune for for all of this. I'm not saying Actually, that we can't make do. I disagree with that assumption. I'm basically saying that part of what we're trying to do is to teach one another to notice the places where care is already stronger than power and to basically align with that. It's like, to, to some extent, there's, there's, there's a lot of places where power is being exercised without care, but it's not universal. So in effect, it's like, I'm not trying to work within the system that doesn't care. I'm basically trying to notice the places where people do care and they're operating already outside of the system so that I can join with that. There's, there's a sense of discernment here. It's a, it's, a, it's a discernment exercise. It's not trying to say what is there already is 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 we are, we're trying to ignore it or, or 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 go past it no to some extent what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to sense into it more deeply so that i can learn where the care can be reinforced yes i hear you i'm not sure that i'm not sure that there is so much a disagreement here as it feels as though there's a context that isn't quite being appreciated in common that's what it feels like to me what so let's see about that Yes, I, well, absolutely. But in the interest of the conversation, I wonder if now, because we've exchanged a little bit here, there's a lot more from me in relation to this. But I want to see if we can trust that to what might come through with Daniel, with Michelle, and we'll see if we can work with that at those as weavings. So for the next little period here, I'm really curious to hear what's present for Daniel and Michelle, and then we can continue this reflection and see where we go at the end. I'm sure both of you are desiring to speak. So whoever feels most called, please. Up to you, Daniel. You are a gentleman. Well, I don't agree, disagree with any of that. Basically, the when we talk about the problem, it's the notion of how could I be in a situation by which I could make sustainable, basically, places where people could live according to different dynamics, say, of care. So, for example, like we have this problem right now where I haven't figured out how I can spend more time, say, at Voicecraft or on the liminal web training with people or being in the community because, alas, I have to pay for bills for the farm. I find myself having to do all those different things. So the key, the question is, what can the relationship be between spaces like this that are all about conditioning 
everything according to care, that sort of attunement, that you're not going to basically be having to do what Ivan Illich would kind of talk about shadow work, which takes a lot of time and a lot of focus, while simultaneously being exhausted trying to figure out how to pay for the different bills. Is there a way to make those things exist together? Because I think what ends up happening, like you're saying, basically because the pricing mechanism is so effective and communicating information, coordinating, it's so tempted and therefore to assume an ontology from an effectiveness of a mechanism of knowing. And you say, well, everything then can be as, uh, understood according to price. And that's the overfitting moment. That's very, very problematic. And you see what's very tricky is why I've been so interested on kind of looking at Tocqueville is in the possibility of democracy is meeting people without any mediation according to, say, occupation, aristocracy, job, where I meet you one-on-one -on -one in care and we talk about what we value and why we value that and why we want the, com the commons to, in fact, embody said values. The issue that Tocqueville noticed is that in order to be able to handle the commons, you have to be comfortable with anxiety. You have to be comfortable with facing human beings and being kind of naked in your beliefs and actually meeting them and being vulnerable to them. And what humans tend to do when faced with that anxiety is then turn to power and transaction or to get a, a, um, a job that can mediate. Likewise, we actually use prices to avoid anxiety because when people ask, why did you, uh, why did you buy that? Oh, because it was worth a lot. You, I don't have to defend my value system. I can just tell them that it had a high price, right? Well, likewise, what ends up happening, if you want to support communities of cares or commons or like voicecraft, when people are like, why are you giving $500 to that? What's its practical use? You have to stand up and be like, because I believe in it. And that's basically what you have to do. But for the majority of people to get to the place where they're able to do that will take time and training and people who can engage in that training to help them see according to that care. So the question is, what would it look like to create networks that are able to make one another sustainable so that we can do that work and move beyond a, I'll talk about autonomous rationality. I'll talk about low order thinking where you just reduce everything to a basic cause and effect. I like your language between the difference between choice and cause. And so how can we do that work? So the question of the pricing or the economic questions is not a question of how do we play to make these spaces work with the system? Because the whole idea is once you plug into the system, it changes your logic in accordance with the system. It disables you from being able to make choices outside of just following causation. So how do you avoid doing that? So I don't disagree with anything that you were saying there, Mr. Landry. Yes, please go ahead, Michelle. Yeah, thank you for speaking that, Daniel. I think that's that's very helpful. That's certainly the perspective that I'm that I'm coming from. Um, but for me, that places us in a position where, in fact, we, um, if if we can be more intelligent, can come to a place of interaction in that context. We're in a context that makes it that's making it in my opinion it's it's a real challenge we are currently in the process of relating with the challenge of what it means to grow relationships of care with respect to the kind of understanding that we would hope might be sufficient to get us there rather than what got us here to use some of that language and so michelle how, how are you relating to all of this yes um, so, so I think the issue for me is that, you know, it's not power or care. It's always occurring at the same time. And so basically, if you don't have power, you cannot care. Um, 
And I, I, so I always like to have a little historical perspective. So in, anthropologically speaking, you know, we started in small groups, right? We started in bands and clans and tribes where most, most of everyone knew each other. So it was kinship. Kinship was care. And you judge people on the basis of kinship. Uh, you're friendly with those you care for, and you're not necessarily friendly with people you don't care for, right? Um, I I'm I'm I live in this type of society. Think about the south of Italy, you know, where family is very very strong, but if you're outside, you don't care. You just don't care for outsiders, right? So there's very strong love and solidarity within a close network, but it doesn't translate outside. And so this is where institutions comes in, how we organize our society and what, what it allows in terms of care. Um, and so here is the idea, why, why am I so interested in the commons as they exist today? And, I, and that was a good point, I think, from Forrest, that you know, we are not living in an indigenous environment. Uh, we can be inspired by you know, some of their values, but this is not how we're going to solve any of the issues that we are facing, right? And so that's why I'm looking at advanced technological communities, because I think there's something to learn there. So just briefly, the historical vision is, so we used to care for small groups. Once you introduce coercion, it no longer works, right? So if you have one tribe invading another and enslaving it, or making it a paid tribute, communal shareholding and gifting, which were the dominant forms of value exchange, don't work. So then comes in what we call authority ranking. You get according to power, you know, according to your birth as a, in a feudal system or whatever, right? Or even merit uh, in, in our system. Um, and so community of care expands and dilutes at the same time. So we get the nation is not, was for a long time the locus of care through the, you know, the welfare systems, the solidarity systems for the nation. Um, but it's very weak in terms of like your, your, your emotional uh, needs, right? And so we have reached the point, and, and this is, I, I think, very interesting in, in, in technology that we cannot create we can scale up small group dynamics digitally. This, this we couldn't do before, right? So we have, we have intergroup competition, multi-level group selection. So if we care too much, we lose the competition. So we have to limit care and, and focus on power and force. And big wins from small. This is, this is human history. Big corporations winning from small corporations, big nations winning from small nations. And the fundamental change that I see today is that we can now create affinity kinship at a translocal level. So we can export small group dynamics that are relatively um, not directly linked to, the, to geography. Um, and so this is a problem and an opportunity, right? So, so so here's what I want to say about the commons, because that for me was revolutionary. So in, in our modern society, everything is mediated through money. So if I want a job, I have to find an employer. 
And in order to get make a living, I need to go in a labor contract, a subordination contract. I'll get paid if I do what I'm being told to. And, you know, this is a very constraining uh, situation, you know, where, you know, what, what Marx called alienation, right? So Forrest is a, is a craftsman. That, that's not alienating. You, you're making, you know what you're making, you have meaning. Once you're an employee, you're no longer doing what you want to do, you're doing what you're told to do, right? So now, now get the kind of environments that, that I'm familiar with, where we are, we're back into the commons. So we have an open system and I can freely give my contribution, my work, my labor to a common project, which I recognize as mine, right? So we, we, have, we have flipped that situation again. Uh, and that for me is anthropologically revolutionary, that we have more and more people that can do this. Now, here's the issue. The institutions are not geared to it, right? There is no, there's no guarantee of making a living by doing that. So the first phase was open source. In open source, everybody can contribute to a common good. Around that common good, you create an entrepreneurial economy that is codependent on this common good, like Linux or Arduino, whatever you want to call it, right? But the, the more you work for the network and the less you interface with the market, the less you are able to make a living. This, this was the big issue with open source. So open source got dominated by large multinational corporations because you needed that to make a living on the market. And a lot of people who were giving the most to the network were the poorest. That was a fundamental structural issue for the open source economy. So here's where crypto comes in. And, 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 and that's why I'm, I'm enthusiastic about it. And, and I, I want to explain what, what, what it is that they're doing that is so interesting. Um, so first of all, they, they created new currencies, right? Currencies that work in kind of synergy with capitalism. So the way capitalism works today is by basically speculation. Like you invest for future value. And so the token is like a micro share. Uh, and, and so, so th they succeeded. In, in, in creating capital for the commons, right? To create a, a reverse stream that funds community dynamics, open source production. Um, okay, so, and so now the, what they did is they create public goods funding. So they kind of tax themselves. Uh, for example, you have a network you need to use you'll pay twice the amount of the cost of the network and that other half is invested in public goods funding, right? So they're funding their own commons. This is, this is for me really, really interesting at a macro level that this is becoming possible, right? Okay, so the question for me is then like what kind of institutions of power can allow care, right? Um, and so here's, this, I think, both markets and states 
have become uh, not adequate enough to fund care. Uh, I, I think for me, this is this is the issue. Uh, because, you know, we all want care for our first, you know, the circle of care. We start with, with our family and extend it to community. And if possible, we extend it even more to, to the benefit of the whole earth and all its beings, right? But how do we do this we, without sacrificing uh, our own family, in, you know, in, into contributory idealism? How? So what kind of institutions do we need in the world, right? Anyway, maybe I'm rambling, but I, I, I still like to think in terms of like institutions and how do we express and organize this care? And so the point where I've come, and this is kind of my argument, is we need new institutions. We, we need magisteria of the commons. So not just state institutions and market institutions, but institutions which can protect and care for a common resource and all the people and beings dependent on that resource. And I think we agree. that is the task that, that we have to do today. I, I think we agree on the objectives and even about some of the mediologies, but not all of them. So the, the places where I hear the first question was, okay, so this is something that David was referring to. How do I balance the need to feed my family to do work versus participation in voice craft, right? That's like, hey, I wanna to give to this community. I wanna do this thing, but I can't do it completely because otherwise my farm's not gonna do well. And that's a completely legit question. First of all, I just wanna acknowledge that I am not ignoring that question. I consider that question to be valid. And moreover, that that any real solution is going to have to provide for everybody a, a way to understand an answer to that question. It's not just that you want an answer. It's that we want to understand the dynamics of a question like that well enough so that when we're, when we're generalizing to an answer, which is more what Michael's doing, is, 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 is we're actually looking at it in, in a way that allows everybody to understand what's going on in this space. So I think at this point, in order to respond to that, I'm going to, I'm going to basically... Uh, summarize, I, I believe, and and maybe Michael, you can correct me if I, if I do it too crudely, but but what I I hear you're describing is is something which I I first of all agree with. You said, hey, it's neither just care or just power, right? It isn't an either or. It's both, right? They're they're like power, care, and transaction are going on, right? They're simultaneously happening, and it and and, and what I'm basically pointing to is not that it's either or, but the relationships between them. So for instance, if, 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 if you and I are entering into some sort of communication process and one or the other of us senses that the other person is coming from a place of transaction, then in effect, I have to switch how I'm orienting to that conversation. If we're both orienting from a position of giving and care, then we can just do that and it's great. But if, if 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 somehow I make a mistake, I misunderstand something you're saying and I'm realizing, oh, he's trying to go for prestige or going for ego or trying to increase his social power or he's actually getting paid to represent this point of view, I'm no longer gonna know where your speaking is coming from. And from that doubt, I'm gonna basically start to say, okay, well, I probably shouldn't be as vulnerable. I probably shouldn't volunteer as much because I'm disadvantaging myself because we're actually playing a game of transaction and winners and losers exist. It's no longer a win-win situation. It's a win-lose situation, potentially. If I'm not careful, 
to protect the resources. If I just give them all away and I don't get anything back in a, in a transactional schema, then I've effectively just been a loser. So, so in this sense, there's a there's a notion here of of the of the you know you've got two people A and B. If A is in a giving mode and B is in a giving mode, then kumbaya. If A is in a transactional mode and B is in a giving mode, then B is going to lose. If it's vice versa, or B is transactional and A is giving, A is going to lose. If they're both transactional, then it's transactional. So of the three possible, I'm sorry, of the of the four possibilities that there are, the three of them end up being transactional. So in this sense, transactional process dominates care process. Okay, and I'm just making that as an observation. I'm not even evaluating that as good or bad. Okay. We notice the same kind of dynamic occurring if the relationship between one and another person, like say we're engaged in a transactional relationship, but all of a sudden I notice that my ability to be in that relationship is uh, constrained by some need. I can't walk away from the deal. The other guy senses that. He's going to know he has power to compel a better price or to compel me to just you know forfeit resources, i.e. extortion, right? So in effect... Again, we see of the four possibilities, they're both transactional. A is transactional and B is power-oriented, or B is transactional, A is power-oriented, or they're both power-oriented, that the power orientation is going to dominate the care relationship. I'm sorry, the transactional relationship, the same way the transaction dominated care. Is any, so, so then we get to the thing of, well, power dominates all. Uh, actually, no. When you were saying, Michael, that you were you were saying, okay, I'm gonna, I, you know, you, you mentioned to me, hey, you're a craftsman, and you know, because of that, you can do things for yourself, and you can kind of circumvent what David was pointing to as far as, you know, you have the expertise, you've been paid to do these things, so to some extent, you can boot yourself out of the system a little bit for all the things that you happen to have skills for, that you don't have to hire somebody else. But you're pointing out, you know, I got to work a job, right? I'm I'm I've got to go find a place where you know I'm going to basically get paid so I can effectively pay my rent and buy food and take care of my children. And it's like, you know, that's true. But I bet, I bet you that when you're job seeking and you see multinational corporation A versus multinational corporation B, you're probably going to say, geez, you know, I'm spending eight hours of my day, five days a week, and probably a lot more because, you know, of all the prep and stuff and travel and everything else that, 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 wow, this is a huge chunk of my life. And at the end of my life, am I going to be happier if I work for company A or B? Is my family going to be healthier if I work for company A or B? And if one of those companies has a good culture and allows you to work from home and be with your family and has actual, like not astroturfing, but genuinely good policies in relation to their staff and their relationships with the environment. And, you know, they're actually doing something that matters in the world. You're going to probably choose. I, I would be willing to bet most people that I know, at least would basically say, you know, I would probably be willing to take a 10 to 15% pay cut, you know, company B is 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 just a way better deal than company a they're assholes and i just don't want to work for that company i want to work for a company where they treat me like a human i.e they care and in effect there's a sense in which we have to be discerning about what is actually the truth do they actually care or are they just pretending they care do they actually have green policies will my family actually be healthier or will it only look like that and really it'll actually suck 
right? And so in this particular sense, you notice that the degree to which care is actually the dominant factor for the choice as to where power is going to be supported and where it isn't, right? People vote for a president because hopefully they don't just think, oh, that person's like me. It's they care about the same things I do and that they actually care about those things rather than, you know, what politicians usually do, which is promise all sorts of stuff and never deliver. And so in effect, there's a sense here in which we're basically saying there is a sense there is an actual sense. We're in the long term. Care dominates power. And it's this place that I'm basically saying, you know, and, and this is, I think, partially where, where we depart, is that it is really, really easy for us to all believe that power is the end. And that it isn't the case that care dominates power. And we can see lots of examples where power has been exercised without care to terrible results. And people get away with it all the freaking time. I mean, you know, all of us know that the world is full of injustice, full of places where somebody should be punished for doing something terrible. But really what we care about is, geez, you know, what's done is done. Let's see if we can make it so that we don't ever fuck up that way again. Right? Because the thing is, is that I can't change the past, not usually, but I can think about making better choices in the present and the future. And I'm going to need to care about those choices. I'm going to need to make those choices better on the basis of thinking about what matters. And that's going to influence who I vote for, where I spend my money, who I work for, and what I do. And the thing about the, the and, and this is like, you know, the, the, the overall balance here is it's like, well, where does that care ultimately come from? Well, it isn't going to come from business because, Frankly, they're driven by economic incentives. It's not unnatural that that be the case. There's a feedback loop there. It's causal process. Of course, it's going to work that way. I'm not going to try to basically dress up a pig to look like a cat. And in effect, there's a sense in which there's a, there's, there's a notion in which government itself, although it should act as a regulation on the excesses of businesses, feedback cycles that just go completely AWOL, or so far into the direction of power that they end up causing all sorts of harm, giants moving around in the world, um, antitrust that should have been filed and wasn't until way too late, all sorts of stuff, right? And so in effect, there's a sense here in which we're basically saying, okay, governance should basically be making better choices about where to put the constraints. But governance is a system. And in the same sort of way that I can't dress a pig to look like a cat, I can't make a cat look like a dog. And there's a sense in which I'm basically saying, okay, where is the place from which governance gets its power to constrain the marketplace? Well, it gets it from the population. And so in effect, what we're really looking for is essentially what is the constitutional agreement, what we would call the, the, the social contract that basically says the government is in a sense going to implement the value systems of the community. And the community is not an institution. It's a collection of values. It's a collection of languages, of stories, of language, of, of, of narratives of, of, of who we are together. And if I turn that into an institution, I'm making it either into a government or a business. We've just identified that neither of those can do the thing we want to do. It's in effect, it's like I was saying earlier, there is no such thing as a community that isn't in a certain sense got a value system. And if you name it, it becomes a religion. But there's sure as heck, certainly not a religion that's it's never a community. All religions are communities. 
And, you know, it is appropriate that there be some separation between religion and state, as there is to be between state and 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 business economy. But but now there's this cycle, okay? Marketplace is governed, is shaped by, is limited by, is is constrained by, i.e., the next magisteria is governance. But the next magisteria after governance is the people. And what are the people held by? Well, it doesn't end there. It's not that the people have quote unquote ultimate power. It folds around, right? How do you keep a population, you know, like when we're talking about mob rule and and, and the, the, the the issues of Plato and all the rest of that sort of stuff, when he was talking about democracy, his complaints 2000 years ago are legit, right? We need to actually have a higher order of intelligence as a group. We need to be asking better questions and our communication and conversational process needs to be better than a forum where literally it's a free-for-all of everybody basically doing the uh, whoever has the most charisma and or the most back-end power to compel extortion of other people's votes, you know, that's not a very good way to make choices, okay? Plato pointed yes. to this, That's right? how, in a sense, that's that's a perfect setting for the for the practical problem that is I'm that we're trying, trying to, to be at address. Okay. Yeah, like like I, I want to solve, I can't just solve the rules for rulers problem. I can't just solve the principal agent problem. And I can't solve the multipolar trap problem separately. The multipolar trap problem lives in the realm of business. The rules for rulers problem lives in the realm of governance. And the principal agent problem lives in the space of community, what we call commons, the non-commercial commons. And so in effect, what I'm basically saying is, is that how do you prevent the commons from essentially going into degradation modes? Like we know what happens when government goes wrong. We know what that looks like. We know when markets go wrong and we know what that looks like, but there's not so many people who have noticed what happens when communities go wrong. They're called cults, right? A cult is when there's a social dynamic process where the values start to go way off the field. They're no longer in touch with what is ground truth of reality, the here and now relationship, right? You end up with these crazy transcendental value systems that basically suggest things like, hey, if you do these really awful crimes in the present, after you die, you'll be rewarded in the hereafter. So therefore, you can justify in some sort of transactional sense, doing horrible things to other people and thinking that it's ethical when actually, no, it isn't. It never was. Right? You were deluded because you had caught yourself up in a value system that had no connection to the ground truth of bodies and trees and air and water and food, right? Basic things like shelter and medicine, communication between human beings. So in this particular sense, what we're noticing is, is that the marketplace acts as a check on the community, the same way that community acts as a check on governance and governance acts as a check on marketplace. And this is the way the cycle needs to work. It's the same cycle we're looking at when we talk about the relationship between, say, care, transaction, and power. Care, transaction, power. Power is constrained by care. Care is constrained by transaction. Transaction is constrained by power. All three are going on. Things go wrong when one or another of these modes, in a sense, goes off the page and the cycle is broken. And so in effect, part of what I'm doing here is I'm basically saying, yes, I agree that 
sometimes maybe it's going to be fixed by the creation of a new market system like with cryptocurrency. But in this particular case, I think that's where I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say the more you create a system, the less discerning you've been about the fact that that system is going to entrap you. And that at some point or another, it's going to bite you in the ass because what you actually needed was clearer choices. In other words, you wanted a better option than the ones that were on the palette. You wanted something that wasn't on the menu, to quote Tristan Harris. And so in this particular sense, we now have to be discerning and we have to start asking questions of what do we need to put on the menu that is a third option? So it isn't just a case of either I contribute to Voicecraft or I go work a conventional job on the farm and that these two things, well, you know, I'd like to do this and I have to do that, but there isn't anything else. It's like, actually, no, there is something else. And so in effect, the question that I'm asking you to think about is not how do we fit this into an existing system or how do we create a new system that's a replacement system for the for the ones that that, that, that are in a sense all around. It's basically like, you know, how do we think at a level that is deeper? So we ask a different order of questions. So in a sense, we can basically start to say of, OK, what is this thing that we call community? What is this set of values that we, in a sense, want to be orienting from? that we in a sense can actually have a constraint on what government is doing because we're genuinely aware of what the large social contract is. I'm no longer trying to do legal systems just in terms of fiduciary failures or responsibilities or just in terms of contract law. I have to pay attention to constitutional process. And in this particular sense, that's where the conversation is gonna live because that's where the community is and it has its own nature. It's a nature that, in effect, if I just try to solve it by solving the dynamics of principal-agent problem, rules for rulers or multipolar traps is going to wipe it out. I can't solve multipolar traps by themselves. I can't solve rules for rulers by themselves. And I can't solve principal-agent problem by themselves any more than I can do marketplaces without governance or community or governance without marketplaces and community or community without governance and markets. Right? They all need each other. It's three things, distinct, inseparable, non-interchangeable. So it turns out that all three of these individual problems are impossible to solve by themselves. It's been formally proven, I don't know, going years back. I didn't even do the proofs. I'm pointing to proofs that other philosophers have done. You can't solve the principal agent problem or the rules for rulers problem or the, or the multipolar trap race to the bottom kind of conditions. None of these are solvable by themselves. And it turns out to be the case that even pairs of them, you try to take two of these things together, like oxygen and water, two deadly toxins. Well, uh, maybe sodium chloride would be a better example, right? Sodium as a metal is extremely reactive. You do not want to eat this stuff. You will explode. If you take chlorine gas and you try to adjust that, you're going to die really badly. You put them together, you make salt. Salt is necessary for life. It's everywhere. Perfectly benign most of the time. So in effect, the thing is, is that taking two of these impossible to problem, impossible to solve problems and combining them also doesn't yield a solution for any pair. But here's the magic. Here's the thing that is genuinely new. The metaphysics via axiom two shows a way that we can solve all three impossible problems at once. It is possible to do stable community, stable economic 
and environmental systems in stable, conscious, collective governance. It is possible. And it turns out that while it works really well at small scales of less than 30, and the proofs are very solid for things showing up for everything past, say, around 200 people, there is a no man's land between 30 and roughly Dunbar Prime, right? The, the main one. And that no man's land, because of the constitution of our individual species, I mean, every time somebody tries to come up with a model of governance that starts with some incremental approach or some sort of approach that basically is defined by adding more and more people to a group, I'm basically thinking, oh my God, they're going to screw it up again. Because the thing is, is that certain approaches can't work for the kinds of problems that we're in. Other approaches are needed. This is why it's important for us to come back to root principles and to understand the dynamics of what's actually happening. So it isn't because I'm ignoring the question that Daniel is asking, or I'm ignorant of the dynamics that Michael's pointing at, or that I'm evading the question that Tim is asking. It's because I'm literally taking those questions all the way to the foundations. And I'm basically saying at the level of those foundations, new processes emerge, which actually answer these questions, but it isn't obvious. And the usual approaches of how we think we're going to get from point A to point B aren't going to get you there. I guarantee it. Understood. Thank you, Forrest. I, I want to say a couple things here just because, and, and really thank you. Um, thank you, everyone. There's obviously a tremendous amount here and many of these threads, you know, I've been with in relation to this thinking forest for several years and, you know, it's impossible to, to really presence it all. But I, I, you know, I just, because I, we're approaching the mark where I'd like to invite others in just to follow through with that as the invitation. I also sense that there's something really meaningful that I feel is there to be presenced and it's something that it's something that I haven't been able to voice in this kind of context and um, with yourself Forrest on a number of occasions even going back to conversations we had with John Viveki I've had a number of experiences where there's been a number of hours of really profound <laughs> exchange and then feeling as though there was something like vital that I've wanted to express that hasn't been able to come through. And, and it seems as though it's, it's what it's doing is creating a kind of, it feels like a distance between yourself and myself with respect to shared territory of where we're at. And so you can understand why I have this feeling that that seems important. And we're also navigating the bandwidth um, sort of responsibilities in a sense, that's a kind of meta, like that's a kind of reflection on the, on part of the meta point that I would actually like to make about the nature of the difference and distance between us itself in that, in, in some important sense, um, it's not so much the difference, it's the distance. Part of the approach here in some, in some sense has been a commitment to a quality of interaction over time that is seeking to make itself available to meet people and address people really where they're at. And there's tremendous limitations with respect to how we can voice where we're at. Some of it very much be under, might be understanding of principles, requiring education and time with those who can help with that. And it's partly, and yet nevertheless, the manner in which we can meet each other where we are at, despite the limitations in what we can express about that, 
can actually, and I think actually is critical to actually being able to bridge towards the kind of context that can support people to come to understand things with the level of clarity that might be present in, let's say, one metaphysical way of understanding as regards another. And, um, and so, I'd, so that's the, one of the first points I'd make. It seems to me that part of this liminal time involves <laughs> the orientation toward grappling with the scarcities of energy associated with the challenge of creating the environments, the atmospheres, the fields in which mutual education and orientation towards depth can actually be welcome, but to also respect that with respect to the dignity with which each and every voice shows up as a seeker in that process. And from my perspective, that's most afforded when there is held open the genuine knowing and in some sense opportunity to speak from that knowing that in fact, even though we might not share all the same language, we can in fact feel, and I know you fundamentally agree because we're talking about attunement and discernment, that we can in fact support the orientation towards some depth of inquiry, but it has to be in the context of how we can live and be together in the world now and build in the world now, because the conversation comes to an end and people, I'm not saying it's not messy. I'm not saying in that sense, there isn't a tremendous amount of inadequacy when in some important sense, measured against or weighed against or um, related with some mode of expression which can present with more clarity the nature of the tremendous complex problems we're facing. So it's with that, it's in that kind of spirit that I also want to invite others here into sharing, sharing presence. And I'd also like to say to yourself, Forrest, that, you know, it's certainly is an intention I continue to feel very much in, in my being that I want to create, I want to participate in the creation of contexts in which the manner and the, the learning that you have come to be able to express is genuinely welcome to relate with the attempts of community and network and people who are in and out and not represented here and yet are part of influencing this can come and in some sense, um, in that sense, enter the kind of process where a certain holding to account at some point becomes absolutely necessary. But the problem is, is that a certain um, criterion of holding to account as expressed in language that has not had the opportunity to generate is, in my opinion, an can be an impediment to the actual growth and nurturing of the kind of context that can actually orient by way of praxis together in that in that direction yeah explain and more so, i'm trying to understand this point so help me here it's the core of it in some sense i remember once when we initially spoke to each other and uh, one of the first points you ever made to me which i thoroughly agreed with was that the sort of the work of community process takes far more time than is presently thought about or that people have the opportunity to give to it. And in some important sense, I'm really just emphasizing that, but I'm emphasizing that in the context of 
the grandiosity of the attempt to reckon with the deep patterns of life and time that here we're wanting to be accountable to. And so we're in this tricky situation where on the one hand, you know, on the one hand, I, I'm kind of speaking from the, like I'm affirming the, the, the care that, um, that many people are showing up with to the degree they can. And I'm also affirming the importance of the processes enabling of the kind of clarity of insight and understanding, enabling of effective choices in the context of all of that. And in some sense, I'm saying like, almost like, let's take a breather, let's take our time. And, um, and I hope that in that process, in fact, there's actually a tremendous amount for yourself, Forrest, to perceive in that is in fact already present in a number of ways with respect to treatment of each other in the world, which, um, which kind of wants to, which wants to express itself and yet can be a tricky thing, can be a tricky thing to do so. I didn't quite finish that as I'd wanted to, but at least something in there is part of it. And well, I think I, the level of conversation that everybody's bringing to this yourself, uh, Daniel and Michael is enormous. And so I'm in that sense, truly appreciating that. Um, you know, and part of what I'm trying to do also, I mean, I'm, I'm in one sense, I'm aware I'm being very forceful, but I'm also trying to make sure I make things that will be useful and will connect back as much as I can. Cause I want to give, given the time is short, I want to give as much value for the airtime that I'm taking up as I can. Yes, that's that I understand. And I also feel very much the the integrity of that. Like I feel I feel that you're bringing that forth. In some important sense, you know, I, I relate with this just so much like in, in my own context of inviting space to share voice. I made a commitment once in a, in a journey, and I've attempted to live by it, which was to not speak that which others could in in context and um that's a challenging thing to do particularly when i consistently surround myself with people who are capable of speaking so many things who also inform me so anyway i i look forward to there's there's plenty of things i'd like to you know organize in that sense and invite to bring together in the future and i think we may need to experiment with structures I wonder about the necessity, and I'll just say this playfully, I wonder about potentially the the importance of creating contexts in which maybe there might be two to six hours of dialogue, let's just start with two, which are in some sense reflections and a mutual learning journey weaving in with themes you've you've might have just shared, Forrest. It might be an interesting experiment. It might be some there might be some sort of symmetry there that might be really valuable from the perspective of group. Um, but maybe we can talk about that later. This feels like a start. It feels like uh, actually, uh, honestly, the, 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 the duration and the frequency of this conversation has been awesome for me. I, I'm, 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 I'm glad for what is I'm not lamenting what I don't yet have. And then yes. moreover than that, um, I, I, I think in reflection to something you mentioned just a moment ago, uh, I, I encountered Charles Eisenstein at a, an Emerge conference uh, a couple of years ago. He, he introduced me to this idea of wait. Why am I talking? And 
I thought that was the most awesome thing I'd heard, like probably in months. I don't know if he invented it or, if, but what, but he introduced me to it. And I, and I, that, that consciousness of what is it that matters right now? How can I bring the most meaningful thing forward for this group in this context to build as much connection as could possibly be have? That's the comments I'm supporting in this moment. And I think yes. that's, that's, I'm experiencing that with everybody in the call. Like so far, I've only really heard four voices, myself and the three of you. But on the other hand, I, I, I suspect that if anyone else is on this call, that they probably also have that, that sense of building community and, and being really conscious of where is my come from in this moment that I'm basically trying to contribute care, care for the uh, I, I am delighted to meet you, Daniel. I'm delighted to meet you, Michael. I, I like, like, like when Daniel, when you go and you describe all of these connections and the things you're thinking about and so on and so forth, it's kind of like, wow, that is an awesome playground. I am super thrilled. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I love the sort of deep kind of fundamental embodied family values kind of perspective and just actually like looking around at life and saying, what have I learned? Where am I really sitting? And not and, and the humility with which you bring that, uh, Michael, is, is, has been absolutely delightful. So I just I just want to say I appreciate that. And Tim, you know, you and I have talked already, so I, I've, I've, I've complimented you on other occasions. But there's things about the way that you think and move in the world, which I've come to appreciate. And the one time I had a disagreement with you, I came to realize that I was the one that was in error. So... <laughs> Um, you know, in this sense, I'm basically just along for the happiness of what is in this moment. And so that's, that's, that's good. Hey, thank you, Forrest. That's really beautifully spoken. And so with that, I would like to invite those of you who would like to make your presence felt in video form just to do so and um, also open up the opportunity for some short reflections. Uh, there may not be too much time to respond at depth to particular kinds of questions. And I'd also just like to say to Daniel and Michelle, please, you're very much welcome to share your thoughts as this next section um, proceeds with respect to what might have been present so far. I appreciate there might be nuance about, for instance, the relationship between the world of crypto and this broader conversation, which would itself require an extrapolation, or at least for those with interest about that, an extrapolation might be of value, notwithstanding the points I am in deep agreement with about, um, with respect to Forrest. But there's obviously so many different threads here, is all I'm trying to say. And I do want to open it up for those of you who have been present to share what has been meaningful to you coming through. And, um, Yes, and so please, I invite that and thank you. But also no pressure as well. I, this is the first time we're experimenting with this as a, as a thing, really. For me, it's a, tremendous, um, it's a tremendous privilege to be able to, to sit here and invite so many people I enjoy relationships with to, to be with yourselves as well. So yeah, thank you very much for that. So we're just going to kind of see about opening the space. Adriana, yeah. Well, thank you. It was um, very energized and I I heard lots of great um, things and it feels it feels really hard to actually try to engage with all these big topics and big thoughts in a 
you know, in a short moment that we have, and I also want to allow others to speak. So it's really tricky because part, I want to start by partially saying I'd love to be in another conversation in which this can be actually carried through and ripple because there are lots of ripples. But from where I'm standing, um, my interest is really to speak for the invisible value in modernity and the things that we haven't quite um, learned how to place place a, a, a value onto. So I'm coming from from that place, and it feels really tricky. I heard I heard in the words of all of you actually, including Tim, this you know this the problems that we're engaging with have to we have to ask better questions. We have to engage from a different place, and so I'm all for that and simultaneously it's such a hard thing to do because um even in the you know when um you said that something you said daniel about the headache and how we're conditioned to just get you know try to rid ourselves from the headache so then it took me to think about just the capacity to be with tension in our bodies and not just negative tension but just tension tension and the dance of tension and even it might be sexual polarities it might be anything tension in any form and I was just thinking when I was hearing um Forrest I was hearing your transmission like I could see the amount of energy you have for what you're bringing there's so much energy and I was just thinking of like how like the withholding of this energy is probably really hard for you because it feels really like a powerful, like a like a something coursing through your body. And at the same time, I was noticing Tim wanting to engage. So for me, just on an energetic level, I was just um, noticing the 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 masculine and feminine polarities being played in to to men um, in that in that sense. And Tim in that place, in that um, today being, you know, the feminine polarity and how hard it is. And if I don't actually blame anybody, if I can just see from a place of generosity of how actually Forrest is holding so much truth and so much stuff that, you know, you need to bring out. And then Tim wants to hold or voice something else that is a little bit more subtle and how hard this dance is. So that's exactly the dance that I'm in. And it's just, it's a, it's a hard dance because there's truth and beauty to both. And I'm like, ah, oh, okay. So how do we do it? How, how is, are there actually um, constraints that we might need to like, how do we, how do we harness the, the water from, uh, from forest water well and, and not, and at the same time, be able to move this water and, and water the plants that are wanting to emerge, um, but don't have such power or such so many words or so. Um, that's what that's what's emerging for me. And I feel, so I do feel really energized. I'll probably listen to this later to 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 trickle down the the wisdom. But I also would love to. There's something that I'd love to carry through and I don't I don't know so it's just an invitation an energetic invitation to go like oh are there seedlings wanting to emerge that they need to you know sprout with different rhythms and different moments and yeah so thank you thank you Adriana I think what might be nice is to keep the space open for anyone else to share reflections or questions in that way and that could also further future conversations I have a question, but before 
seems like there's this enormous object in my awareness, which is just my appreciation for you, Forrest. I, I won't spend too much time voicing it because I wouldn't know how, but your your work has been just the ways it's touched me in my life and Kyle, my work partner right now. It's so foundational to our conversation. I know it is for Tim. I know it is for Journey. Like, yeah, it's just, it's truly remarkable. And it it's just been this pillar for me. And there's, yeah, I just wouldn't even know how to begin to speak to the value that it's brought to my life. But I hope that starts to get at it. So thank you. Um, my, my question, it's around the, the no man's land between the small group process and the larger scaling. I'm curious if you have an understanding or any intuitions around why that exists. And I'm also wondering if you've articulated the larger scale dynamics anywhere, because I haven't come across those. So thank you. I'll, I'll answer both briefly, really briefly, just to be concise for the, for the needs of the others. Um, in thinking about that no man's land, it's important to keep track of how strong the bonding energy is between different people and whether or not there are sub clicks that form that can essentially dominate the process of the whole. And so there's a, there's a series of asymmetries that show up because quite frankly, humans are a sexual species. And so that ends up becoming for reasonable reasons, just a, 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 a fairly complex challenge to try to do something that on a larger scale can be mediated by a kind of anonymity process that can't work at smaller scales. And the kinds of things that work at smaller scales just depend upon familiarity of relationship won't work at larger scales, which we've all noticed. It's just that the anonymity dynamics haven't really been seen as, as, as actually a viable methodology upon which governance can be based. So the no man's land is essentially the crossover between when one dominant, when one process is the basis versus when the other process is the basis. And when you do the math, uh, it, it, it comes out pretty strongly that we really shouldn't expect things to work in the middle space unless they are institutional, which is part of the reason why the world is largely dominated by institutional thinking and institutional process, because we keep trying to scale up small processes in the large and it doesn't work. There is an articulation of the design of how things work at the large scale. Um, the part of the information that is public currently is the EGP work. Um, we are signing up people to learn how to do inquiry coach training in that space. Um, I don't have a link to that right handy in my world. I could probably find it quickly, but honestly, I would say connect with uh, with Ben and the uh, the IDM book club or um, send me an email or contact me privately and I'll, I'll figure out a way to connect you into that work. Um, there are a larger number of things. Uh, EGP is layer two out of seven. Most of the rest of it has not been articulated in a very public way, and I am working on it. But um, it's it's a it's a it's a substantial project. I expect I'll spend most of the rest of my life on this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Forrest. Hey, folks. Just want to double check that you can hear me well. Cool. Um, first off, as Tom said just earlier, my appreciation for all the work that all three of you have done. Sorry for, I exclude you, Tim, because I just take you as like a given in many regards because I'm here. Yeah, um, you're even staying in my house over the next 10 days while I happen to be away. <laughs> so that much, it's easy to forget. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot spoken to just now and uh, the clarity 
that you will bring to diagnoses of the issue and the proposed interventions and solutions and what the place to get to actually looks like and tuning up across that process from the problematic to the solution is a, is a great thing to continue grappling with. I just wanted to point out maybe in resonance with Adriana, my particular enjoyment of the tension that seemed quite generative when it came to questions of potentially conflating how different issues showing up across scales of coordination from small community up to the global co coalition might in fact probably are in fact as i'm hearing you all i'm going to take it that they are mistaken in their not being recognized as fundamentally different in kind it's it's been really nice speaking or at least listening to you all and speaking to myself in the background just trying to figure how to synergize or make complementary the piece that each of us feels called to pick up across those different scales there are questions that i have which all require hours of conversation as always i found in my notes that i was just asking a lot of questions i was really tempted to make like just these like small little statements that would give me a sense of certainty and comfort, which just, yeah, obviously me not being able to finish any sentence with clarity right now is something that I'm actually okay with insofar as it signals to me that I'm receptive to everything you guys have said without trying to latch onto any solution, either naively or prematurely. So just wanting to voice that and really very much hoping to be in continued relationship with these questions. Thank you, John. I, I would love to see a written list of those questions. If you ever put one together or if other people have questions, write them down, email them to us. I mean, that might actually be really generative for setting up the next conversation. Could I ask, um, Daniel, could I ask you to share some um, just remarks in closing, or at least to open the space for you to do so. Well, it's very kind of you, and it's lovely again to be here with you fine gentlemen, and I appreciate very much all the thoughts and the works you do. Um, Mr. Landry, Mr. Bowen, it's, you, are, uh, you work very hard, and you work very hard to be precise and to do work that matters, and that is commendable because you care, and I appreciate that, so thank you. And, um, you know, one of the things I guess I've been very interested in going back in these periods of time, because Mr. Landry put it very well, where it seems you have to have an entire shift of some people may say paradigm is a term, you might say zeitgeist, this full shift that occurs that seems to open up possibilities of another way of being. You have some philosophers will talk about the event. That's a language that's kind of hip. If you use it, you'll get some points. But, uh, you know, there are different terms that can be used. But it's very interesting because, um, you know, I'll make the example because I've already mentioned Tocqueville um, at the, the note of this kind of culture of engagement where anything was possible with people who were very, this is the funny thing, Tocqueville talks about the Americans as these kind of visionary pragmatists. They have no time for theory at all, but anything is possible. 
So it's this weird thing where they're open to imagination. There's this new frontier and they encounter, and this is the key, at the time of democracy in America where he's going around, people don't know how to relate to one another in terms of say titles or whatever. So they're open to the other, however may they can be. And they had a shared vision of the frontier. And a frontier is not merely geography. It is an imaginative space of possibility. The question is the following, why did it go away? And I'm very interested in these historic periods where there seemed to have been the space of a new possibility and it died. And then power and transaction, all these things sort of came in. The key thing that Tocqueville will talk about, he'll talk about doubt. And he says the key of a democratic modern society is the creation of doubt. Because when you encounter the other who is different, then you ask yourself, why am I the way that I am? And oh, wow, I could have just as easily been born a Hindu as I am a Christian. Oh, my gosh. And for Tocqueville, defining the modern age as this explosion of doubt was what was going to lead people to running from relationships. Because the anxiety that emerged was too great. It's also very interesting. I've been exploring when exactly the entire field of sociology came into existence. And we tend to forget it's actually a rather new field in around the 1830s with Comte. And it tends to be something that emerges in response to these changing modern, pluralistic, globalized conditions. The key, the argument I would like to make is that the main threat to new societies, new ways of thinking is anxiety. It is the feeling of anxiety when we encounter the other, when we're open to the others, because when you experience the others, you reflect on yourself. Why do so many people get married and then one day say, who are you? As if they didn't know the person who it was. They're in these communities for so long. And one day they said, I thought I knew this church and all these people don't care for me. It's because the other person requires something of us that is very, very demanding. And if we cannot come to terms to dwell in and integrate with that anxiety, with that lack, there are these different terms, then what ends up happening is that care is too demanding of us. We cannot handle it. And we run from it while simultaneously convincing ourselves that it was the other person's fault. So for me, on the notion of the possibility of a different sort of paradigm, we have to ask, how do we condition people to sit in anxiety with tension? Because if you can sit in this, you have the old Dante notion that the only way to heaven is to go through hell and you can only get to the, uh, you have to follow Beatrice through Purgatorio. There is a certain work that has to be done on the individual that requires them to sit with that anxiety so that they can prove capable of attuning according to care and beauty. What is that work? How do communities do that? And I would basically make the argument that there has never been an example of democracy, as Tocqueville's describing, that hasn't been basically dumb luck. Dumb luck of having the environment put together on the frontier of people who are pragmatists, who because you had all those things together, they tended to relate to each other in a very unique way really only lasted for like 30 years before merchant interest and power and all these kind of took off. I think there are other examples that you can go through history. I'm very interested in those moments. But the key is that if we don't do, and I like how, how Aspasia put it, like not avoiding the absence of anxiety is not necessarily evidence that we've worked through anxiety. The absence of fear is not necessarily the presence of courage. And I think it's important to identify that the ability to work through anxiety and to sit in the presence of the other is the feeling that we're going to have to live with if we want to relate in terms of care and have more of a paramatic shift on all levels. But the key is the following, the feeling, and to close the point, the feeling of anxiety feels like evidence that you shouldn't be doing this.
When you feel it, you're like, oh, this means I shouldn't be here. This means that this person is a bad person. This means I shouldn't care. And so we can rationally and logically remove ourselves from the gymnasium in the Socrates sense, from the place that we need to be so that we can prove capable of being attuned. So I think it's just interesting when we look through history and often sociology will be about power, Foucault, I could talk about all these different people, but actually it starts from a condition of anxiety that then turns to power to run from that anxiety because we have not, we have not really learned as a species to relate to the other person for an extended per period of time by which we relate in terms of care, not something else. We have to learn to dwell together if we're going to keep living together. Beautifully said. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. And it's just, it's such a, it's such like, it's such a big ask, isn't it? It's such a big ask. And yet it's also, it's on the one hand, a massive ask. And it's also something which seems to be the call of the soul. <laughs> and so we have in this tremendous tension of, um, of really giving ourselves to something beyond ourselves in recognition that there is a tremendous amount beyond ourselves <laughs> and that's that can itself be experienced as a as a tremendous weight at times certainly i've experienced stress in my life so yes but more than that too more than stress other than stress so thank you thank you daniel michelle if you'd like to share some closing remarks. Well, yeah, yes, what Daniel just said uh, is, uh, I think, very, very important. And, you know, I think there is a social aspect to it. Um, so, you know, the circle of care, right, which is, which is our ability to extend our care from self to family, to community, to nation, to something bigger and i i think human history is a history of attempts to to come at this kind of unity of the human um so i think the empire and the world religions you know were attempts to through the love of a common godhead to to arrive at a kind of like unitary sphere where people could trust each other um and that only went so far then i think we have marxism which was looking for universal subject in labor you know we are all producers of value and we should all have the right uh to to have a fair uh, part of that value that we all create and that all that also only went so far the nation state system is an, yet another way that, you know, we are part of a nation, but we are part of a system of nations. Again, I think that was uh, an attempt to create this common identity. Um, and I think that is kind of uh, imploding right now, right? So basically, empire doesn't work. World religions are not functioning uh you know socialism is no longer functioning so so what is what is what is uh, the means to such an end that we can extend our care to the planet and i i think this is the key 
So if you know if you're familiar with multi-level selection uh, theory, uh, which I think is you know very very pertinent, which is that humans evolve in groups, and groups are in conflict, and so the groups that win are the ones that determine the evolution of of the whole, because the the people who didn't win have to adapt to the rules of the winning group. And I think this is the challenge right now is, so the, if you look at, again, I'm sorry, I'm a, more like an institutional uh, 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 thinker. So we have the market state, which is, you know, basically the Western vision, which is now locked in competition with neo-sovereignty, which is like the Russia-China axis. So once, once, wants to you know maintain the market dominations and the other group wants to bring in the state right and and i don't see any solution uh, uh, in that because both market entities and state entities are locked in conflict and competition so here's the big question for me is how do we can we transcend that right and so maybe naively but i think that commoning at different scales is the solution to creating this new layer. It's commoning locally. So rebuilding our local connections, like, you know, when you do permaculture, you have your feet in the mud and you're connecting with other people very close to you who are doing the same thing. And, and then you have the bioregional, the national but I think up to really the capacity that we have, and this is what we're doing here, you know, the the attempt to create linkages that are universal and transcend our geographical uh, you know, belongings, right? I, I think this is where it's at, right? That's what I call cosmolocalism. So that we, can we succeed in creating a new layer of identity based on common endeavor and the common endeavor in the end is really, I think, saving and regenerating the planet, finding a new relationship to not just the human, but the, you know, the non-human, right? And, and this is such a challenge because we've never done it. We've always solved our issues through war and conflict. And it's only when the cost of conflict was too high that we reached a higher level, right? So it has been a very painful process of crisis, war, civil war, you know, general destruction and then achieving some kind of higher unity. Um, and, and the problem is we can't afford really that kind of war and conflict. This is the whole conundrum <laughs> where we are in this transition. And, and to be honest, it's very hard to find a satisfactory answer to that. But I think that is what we are, we are seeking to achieve by, you know, by being here. Thank you. Well, thank you all. I feel as though there has been, there have been energies brought into relationship here that feel, it feels good, it feels good to be part of that. And I feel that it's, I feel openings. Yeah, I feel the possibility of some of some new beginnings and that's an awesome thing so thank you very much everyone 
and to yourself, Forrest, Daniel, Michelle, everybody else here in participation. All right then. Much love, everybody.